I'm Buck. My name is Sam. I'm the college ministry director at River City Church, changing the world for Jesus one person at a time. And I am so glad that you guys are all here. Thank you for being here. Uh, I want you to uh, find somebody nearby and just give them a hand hug. It look, it's it's where you go like this, and you just wrap it around like that with the thumb. If you are like COVID, if you don't feel like that's COVID friendly, just tell your friend I don't do hugs. Okay, just but just give somebody you don't know a hand hug real quick. Give them a hand hug. All right, there you go. Hand hugs. All right. So, um, anyway, I'm really glad that you guys are here. Uh, we are going to start things off with a drum roll, please. Everybody drum roll. Theological question of the week. And here it is. Oh, Any second. <laughs> ah, okay. The, okay. Theological question of the week. Uh, dear Regenerate, what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Oh. Okay. Ready? I have two minutes to answer this question. Um, I have a Master's of Arts in Biblical and Theological Studies, so this has been a long time coming because I spent thousands of dollars and lots of time. So hopefully this works out. Here we go. What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Okay, well, uh, that's a curious phrase, and actually it's rooted in a, there was a, there's a, in, in the Gospels, there's a story where Jesus of Nazareth says that, uh, he, he talks about how, um, actually I think it's in Mark chapter 3, Jesus is talking with these religious leaders who are like, hey, you know what, like you're... You're uh, uh, full of the devil, and he's like, "That's not true." Because if I was, then how come there's still like, why, why the devil's house wouldn't stand if it was turned against itself? So boom, and they're like, "Whoa, a house divided against itself shall not stand." Fun fact: Abraham Lincoln quoted that, but Abraham Lincoln didn't say it first; Jesus did. Anyway, um, so then he goes on and he's talking with them, and he says, um, "He says, truly, I say to you, whatever uh, whatever sins anyone commits will be forgiven." Um, uh, it, it, whoever blasphemes against the Son basically says no big deal. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, right? Now everybody goes, ooh, right, when they read that passage because you're like, oh my gosh, there's a sin that is unforgivable, right? And so this is like a big deal. What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Well, um, in, in the context, it's pretty clear, um, but it's, so, it's a little bit nuanced, though. In the Gospels, Jesus is being proclaimed to be the Messiah, right? And so he is supposed to be the chosen one of God who has been chosen by God to set people free from their sins and all this good stuff. What happens is this. If you reject Jesus, he says, if you are rejecting who the Holy Spirit is revealing Jesus to be, a.k.a. the Son of God, you are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. The work of the Spirit is always to reveal the Son to re so that people can get back into relationship with the Father. So the Holy Spirit's job is revealing Jesus. And at that point in history, he's saying, look, if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, you're rejecting his message, and his message is me. The message is not just a bunch of words. It's a person. His name is Jesus. And if you reject him, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which is, means you're guilty of an eternal sin, which means eternal separation from God. Boom. One second left. There we go. Thank you very much. All right. So I hope that was, uh, I hope that was very like, informative for you. If not, Send another email. Uh, so, I guess, to, if you're interested in sending a, a theological question of the week, send your theological question, any theological question about uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to um, regeneratelcse at gmail.com. Uh, well, we don't just have to do theological questions. If there's any question you have about, like, spirituality, let's tackle it together. So we're all about that at Regenerate. We're all about the Word of God. We're about the Bible because we believe that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It has the ability to divide even the very core of who we are, and it is authoritative, and it is a source of life and abundance. And so we are going to preach the Word and Regenerate. If anybody's excited about the Word, you can say amen. It's okay. Amen. If it, there ain't no law against saying amen when somebody says, let's preach the word. Amen. 
So we are going to be doing that tonight. And we are going to be in Amos chapter 6. So if you've got your Bible or you've got your app or whatever it is, I want you to turn to Amos chapter 6. Amos chapter 6. So we've been in, going through this series in Amos. How many of you guys have been blessed by the book of Amos? It's a little intense. It leaves you feeling a little bit crispy. But it's good, right? It's a good crispy. It's like the kind of crispy that my wife Jamie makes on the outside of those veggies that she sautés. So good. So crispy. A little bit of black pepper. A little bit of salt. A little bit of garlic. Not too much. Just mm, high heat. Okay? Seals in the sugars. Makes it crispy on the outside. Makes it juicy on the inside. That's what you want. Amos chapter 6. Amos chapter 6. Tonight we're going to talk about the cost of complacency. The cost. Somebody say the cost. Somebody say complacency. Of complacency. Now, here's the thing. And regenerate, we do believe in the power of God's word. We, and this is the thing. Like, you might be new here. You're like, this is weird. Why is this guy, first of all, so weird? And it's like, well, I can't explain my weirdness. But I can explain to you why we're doing this. Because uh, as Christians and as a ministry of regenerate, uh, of, or rather, of River City Church, we believe that this is like, either, these are the most important words, some of the most important words that have ever been written. Uh, these are, these are, we're reading words that are thousands of years old. This comes, this was written sometime around, comes from around 755 to 760 BC. So quite a while ago, 2,700 years ago that the prophet Amos speaks. And who is Amos? Well, he's a shepherd. We learned this in chapter one of Amos. He's a shepherd who lives in a town called Tekoa, uh, which is now, which is located in what is now the, the modern nation state of Israel. At the time, God's people, the Israelites have been called by him. He spoke to their ancestor, Abraham. And he said, basically, everything in this world is busted up. And everybody's like, amen to that. This world is messed up. I have the internet. I have seen it. I know the world is messed up, right? But now God is taking it. And so God says, I'm going to bless the world through your offspring, Abraham. I'm going to bring a promise that is going to change history through your family line. His family eventually becomes the nation of Israel. They, they grow. He has 12 sons, and those 12 sons give birth to, to, to multiple children who eventually grow up into a nation of millions and uh, they, they're enslaved for 400 years, which you're like, wow, great job, God, following through on your whole I'm going to bless you thing, right? But then what happens is 400 years later, God sends Moses, who delivers the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery. And he says, I'm going to bring you to the land that I promised to your father Abraham. So he says, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a, I'm going to give my people a place to fulfill my promise. And so this is where we are in Amos chapter 6 is. We have this, this man who is called by God. He hears the voice of God. Now, what does that look like? Well, it could have been audible. It could have been more like a, a, a series of, of impressions and thoughts that he got. And, and he just began to write and to proclaim the word of God. It's a little bit unclear as to what this looked like. But prophetic utterance is very common in the Old Testament. And this at this time, the country had gone through a civil war. The northern half of the kingdom, Israel, is separated from the southern half. The problem is this. God said, I want you to build a house for me. He told the king of Israel, David, um, he gave him a download and said, here's some blueprints. I want you to build a house where my presence can be so that way I can commune with my people. Right? And so you're like, yeah, great idea. Let's have a place where God can live. But then the problem is that as uh, th that the country splits in two, and so the northern kingdom says, it's okay, we've got to start our own thing. We'll have our own altar. We'll have our own uh, uh, temple system. That We'll have our own worship system. And so they... they already started off on a weird foot because God had told his people that if they followed him alone, they would be blessed. But if they chose to disobey him or not follow him, they would be cursed. And it's into this moment that we have been reading 
this moment in history that we've been reading in the book of Amos. Last week in chapter 5, we read about how the specifics of the injustice that God was infuriated with. And the whole series that we're being, that we've, what, what I've given, the name I've given to this whole series is Just Equals Right. Just Right. Okay? Just Right. We're trying, and so what we're understanding is as we're going through this, that God cares deeply about justice. He cares about right things being done. He cares about those who are downtrodden being uplifted. He cares about those, the least of these. God actually cares about those things. And a lot of times, uh, we kind of take this personally, that God wants you to be blessed and to have a fulfilling life and to have a, a nice house with a white picket fence and 2.5 children and all that good stuff, and that's fine. But ultimately, God is, this is a word to us corporately. Now, this is God's people 2,700 years ago. But today, the church is God's people. It's not just Israel. It's not just Judah, the southern kingdom. It is, it is millions of people around the globe who proclaim the name of Jesus. So let me ask you a question. I'm going to start with a quick question before we get into the, into the scripture tonight. And the question is this. What is the greatest enemy of justice? The greatest enemy of justice. I, I think a lot of us would we'd hear that word and then we would say, well, it's probably, it's probably hatred, right? Because instantly uh, you, you, know, you think injustice, like the ultimate enemy of injustice. So I'll probably auto Hitler, right? So we just say Hitler, right? Because... Somehow Hitler has to come up in any conversation about morals. I don't know why. Uh, but somehow that guy has weaseled his way into every conversation about morals, probably because he's such an extreme example from history. But the greatest enemy of injustice, I want to posit tonight that the greatest enemy of justice in the world is not hatred, but rather complacency. Complacency. And by complacency, I mean like a love of comfort over a love of God. Loving what is comfortable more than what is right. And so God speaks directly to this in Amos chapter 6. And so, I don't know about you guys, but I was, so I was raised in like a Christian household. We'd go to youth group. Anybody ever like go to youth group when you were a kid? You're like, yeah, youth group. Some of you are like, I got dragged there one time by a friend. I drank a Coke through a gym sock and I'm never going back, right? Um, like they made me do some kind of weird game that was like vaguely criminal, I don't know, like it was, but I'm not sure, you know, it was weird, uh, but, and then they talked about Jesus, which is kind of weird, because they still had the gym sock aftertaste in my mouth, and it was, yeah, um, literally left a bad taste in my mouth, right, um, so, uh, but in, I remember, like, growing up, though, uh, I, I remember I had a lot of friends who were fired up about, about God, fired up about church, fired up about um, spiritual things. And so we talk about whenever the word complacency came up, it's not a word that's used a lot outside of the church, I don't feel like. But basically, it was always, whenever we talked about complacency, it was like, dude, we can't be complacent, bro. Uh, we got we to gotta get after it. When it comes to like, what God wants, dude, if we're going to follow Jesus, we're not going to be complacent. And we're all like, yeah, what does that mean? I don't know, dude, I'm 16. Yeah, you know, like, I, I, I didn't study this in my English class. What, is, what does that mean to, to fight complacency? And so we always assumed that it meant like going to youth group regularly or, or going to church regularly. And then it was about like worshiping harder and shouting amen louder and lifting your hands higher and jumping. And if that was the case, I was winning. Like I was winning at not being complacent because I could jump, I could shout. And I could, you know, and I and I could speak in tongues, and I could and I could pray, and I could do all these kind of really worshipful outward things. But Amos chapter five made it clear that the outward things are not the things that God is most concerned with. So complacency can't have to do so much with what we look like on the outside; it must have to do with who we are on the inside. 
So in the last chapter, Amos outlines what injustice looks like. He talks about the poor being oppressed. He talks about the downtrodden being pushed aside. And then, in this chapter, he, so now he's going to shift gears. Now he's going to talk about the kind of person. Because the kind of person that gives into complacency, the kind of person who promotes injustice, you will, might be surprised, it's not Adolf Hitler. There are not that many Hitlers, which is why we still talk about Hitler. I don't want to say Hitler anymore in this sermon, so I'm just going to get to the reading. So I'm going to go ahead and read it. Amen. Um, so let's go to uh, Amos chapter 6, and let's read this. And it's okay if, we, if, if I preach scripture a little bit tonight. Is that okay? All right, all right. Let's stand up together, and let's read this together. There's 14 verses in chapter 6 of Amos. So here we go. Three, two, one, go. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations, to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great, and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than your territory? O oh, you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Verse 7. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. All right, let's read along chapter, or verse 9. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house, and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, Is there still anyone with you? He shall say, No. And he shall say, Silence! You must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison, and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodibar, who say, Have we not by our own strength captured our name for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from the Lebo Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. This is God's word. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and fill this place right now. I ask you to fill me right now. And I'm, God, I want to ask that you would reveal something deep and true out of scripture tonight. I pray, God, that this would not be something that we just pass idly by, but I pray that you would stir something in our affection for you, that you would stir something in our attention to others. And I pray, God, that you would just let this word, God, let this word have its work in us. Let me get out of the way, God. Let my words be your words tonight. So let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. And everybody who trusts in Jesus said, have a seat. The famous abolitionist Frederick Douglass uh, once said, 
Actually, I got it up here on the screen. He once said this. Frederick Douglass once said, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. If there is no struggle, there is no progress. Douglass knew this well. He was enslaved. Um, the African-American slave trade, or the American slave trade was, was awful. Uh, he was a victim of that, and he came out of it and became one of the biggest, most prolific voices uh, for the abolition of slavery in the mid-1800s. If there is no struggle, though, he said, there is no progress. And when he faced uh, the difficulty of dismantling slavery, he knew it was an entire, there was an entire economy built on slavery. There were entire legal systems built on slavery in the 1800s in America. He knew it was going to take a lot of work to get that undone. It was going to have to take somebody who didn't have a complacent bone in their body. It was going to, in fact, it was not just going to take one person. He knew that he was just one voice, but there were literally millions of people who were going to have to speak up for something to change. There was going to be, have to be something that resounded from the lowest to the highest in the land that was going to change slavery. The only way it could get dismantled is if there was a people who were not complacent. If there is no struggle, there is no progress. So tonight we're going to look at complacency. First, we're going to look at the root of complacency. Secondly, we'll look at the fruit of complacency. And then we're going to look at the cost of complacency. So first of all, let's look at the root of complacency. Look at, look at verse 1, right? Verse 1, he says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations, to whom the house of Israel comes. What is complacency? Well, it's basically valuing comfort... significance, those things will drive you, can drive you in an unhealthy direction, right? And so he said, so he talks about those who are at ease. Now, why is that? Complacency really has nothing, we'll talk about what it has, what it does to you, but what it does to others, we saw in chapter 5, it breeds terrible injustice. It breeds people who are religious on the outside, but they have no, they have no spiritual backbone. They don't, they don't have, they don't care about the needs of others. When they read Jesus saying in Mark 12, 30, where he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all, um, with all your mind. Everybody's like, yes, that sounds great. I can do that. And then Jesus said, and love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. It's like, ah, the second one, I struggle with that. Like, God is so good. So good. Like, we are good. But like this, this part where I have to love other people who are just hot messes and I'd rather not, that's a little bit more difficult, right? And so... He talk, so first of all, he mentions those who are at ease. Satisfaction can breed complacency because when you notice injustice in the world, whether it's social, legal, or economic or otherwise, if you are completely sad, if satisfaction is your idol, it will lead you into ignorance because it will say, I would rather just not, it's better if I don't know what's going on because I'm satisfied with what I have. And I just, I just want what I have. That's, that's it. I just, I just want you to feel good about me. And if I, so I'd rather be ignorant so that way I don't feel bad about me, right? And we're always taught to have healthy self-esteem. And I know that's a huge idol in our culture. We've got to have strong self-esteem. But then it become, can become an idol that leads us into complacency. And then he talks about those who feel secure. Security can also become a, a stronghold in your life because security can lead to fear, a, 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 a fear of losing security. So you're so you have these people who are up in Zion or on Mount Zion. These people who are who are who are uh, leading the country and they feel secure in their position. So that leads to fear because what if I, I can't step outside my comfort zone? I can't I can't look at the needs of other people honestly because if I do, then I have to address the fact that I might lose what I have. 
I don't want to lose that. That makes me scared. Fear. And then he talks about those who are notable. Those who are notable. And so he talks about this, because this is the other thing. It's like when you when significance is the stronghold in your life, it can tend to breed indifference. Because if you're just like, I want to be about me, I want to be about my position, I, I, I want to, I want to be, uh, I want to be about power, then you're gonna stop caring about those around you. Because when you stop, when when you only you're only concerned about your position and your influence, the last thing that you want to do is have that influence robbed from you, so it's easier to be indifferent. It's really easy to be complacent. So verses two through three. He says, uh, you know, pass over to Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great. And you're like, wow, I don't even know how to pronounce those. What does that mean? Uh, it's, these are kingdoms that are nearby Israel. He says, I want you to look at these places. Are you better than these kingdoms? Now, that's obviously a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Are you better than these kingdoms? No. But the thing is, as people of God, they're looking at their situation going, well, we're special. We're different because God chose us. So therefore, we must be the exception to the rule. So when God calls for justice, yeah, that's great. But honestly, uh, I, I'm the exception. But this has to cause us to question that. So we see that the root of complacency it can come out of a lot of things. It can come out of uh, the, your complacency can come out of it out of a desire for satisfaction, which breeds ignorance. It could come out of a desire for security, which leads to fear, or it could come out of a desire for significance, which leads to indifference. But the biggest thing about complacency is that it actually blinds you spiritually to what's really, really important. We're going to get to that in a second. So what is the fruit of complacency? In verses 4 through 6, Amos really starts to unpack this. Because we already know, we already know the damage that's been done to the public at large. We, we, understand, we, we can understand that all these people are, are struggling and, and that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. But this is not just, hear me now, this is not like a sermon about... Uh, about just a certain political stance or anything like that. What I want and what I believe that God wants out of this is to stir a spiritual renewal inside of you, a desire for something that is greater than what you have, because right now they eat, it's really easy to be complacent. And, and, and COVID, when we're living in the middle of COVID-19, it doesn't seem like there's much to do, and so you're, and you're limited in the way that you can gather, and you're limited in the things that you can do. It's easy to get complacent. It's easy to just go, I'm just going to watch another episode. Are you still watching Netflix? Yes. You know, 12 hours later, yes, I still am, right? Like, it's easy. It's easy to fall into complacency. But what happens to you? What well, results in this deep personal apathy? Look at verse 4. He says, woe to those who lie on beds of ivory. Now, some of you hear that and you're like, that is terrible. I would way rather go tuft and needle. That's my brand. You know, like, I am not going to lay on an ivory bed, okay? So... Let's assume that he's not talking about the mattress, okay? But uh, so on an ivory bed, right? These are people who are obviously well off. And, and look at this. Look at the, look at the just just look in verse, verses four and five. You can see it. He talks. They're laying around. They're idle. They're not doing anything. They're gluttonous, saying that they're just they're just eating all the time. And and we and the thing is about our uh, our culture, we we struggle with that. We honestly do. We were like so over carbohydrated and over sugared in, in America that okay, we struggle to, to, to eat healthy at all because we just want to overeat all the time because the things that they serve you at McDonald's and all these places, not, I'm not saying like McDonald's is evil, okay? I will eat a McGriddle literally for every meal of my life if you give me the chance, okay? <laughs> what I am saying is that, you know what? 
Complacency can lead to bad health, even. It can lead to poor health. It can lead you to not even care about yourself anymore. And look at verse 5. He says, those who pluck idly at instruments. What does that mean? Well, that's a really interesting word because it only occurs here in Amos. It doesn't occur anywhere else in the book of the, in any book of the Old Testament. I mean, it's a word that basically means to, to, uh, to improvise on a musical instrument. So I'm like picturing like this, this some dude just like laying there going, oh, give me that guitar. Uh, but I'm too lazy to start a band, so no, I'm just gonna put it away. You know, like I can't, I can't. You know, I can't do it. And so uh, the, the compare this is it leads to idleness, it leads to gluttony, and just entertainment, just, just blind entertainment. It is really easy to spend, especially in the 21st century, to spend your entire life being entertained. You can theoretically spend every waking minute being entertained by absolute nonsense. It doesn't have to be filth. It can just be worthless nonsense. You know why the app is called TikTok? Because it wastes your time. That's literally why it's called did, did that even like TikTok. Because you get on it and then you're like, wow, two days have gone by. <laughs> I haven't even eaten. You know, like I, I looked out for five minutes and then I missed work. You know, what, what, crap, what happened? You know? I missed three classes and I have F's. Help me. My financial aid. Uh, why have, what, it must be Satan. He's attacking me. No, you are on TikTok. <laughs> really? Oh, man. Now, now hear me now. So he talks about those who are just blandly entertained. And entertainment can be, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of great art out there that speaks deep truth that I think is worth taking the time to take in. But when you're just mindlessly consuming, how many shows have you watched in the last year? Like, binge watch. Start to finish. Okay? Like, think about it. Don't, don't, don't give me a number, okay? Don't, don't do that. I'm not here to embarrass you. But how many shows have you done that with? What could you have been doing during that time? Do you know how long, how many episodes that is? Oh, even if it was like a short, like, 10-episode season or whatever, and each episode's 45 minutes, that's 450 minutes. 450 minutes gone. You'll never get them back. What are we doing with the time that's given to us? And then he talks about those who are wealthy. These are the kind of people who would say we're comfortable, right? If anybody asks you, like, how are you doing like financially? And you say, oh, well, we're comfortable. It's like, well, you're driving a Rolls Royce, obviously, because I have never felt comfortable financially in my life, right? Now, some of you guys are like, I would love to be comfortable financially, right? Because you're just like, I'm struggling, you know, I'm in debt up to my eyeballs. It's, you're a college student. I get it. Now, hear me, hear me, though. Wealth itself is not the problem. Paul says in, in Titus 1.15 that to the pure, all things are pure. So, so money is not necessarily evil. I know that some people misquote scripture and say that money is the root of all evil. Wrong. Jesus said the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Okay? The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. He didn't not say all, money, all evil comes from a root of money. Okay? That's more Hollywood than Jesus. Okay? But do you want to know what the real tragedy is, though? You go, okay, so there's these people who are out of shape, laying around, watching Netflix, and um, big deal. Like, what's, why is that such a tragedy? I'll tell you the tragedy. The tragedy is right here. Do you see it right there in verse 6? Look at it. It's, it's worth looking at. He says, you drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest soil. So you're overindulging, right? These are people just partying hard every weekend. You live for Saturday night, so that way you can get up with a hangover on Monday morning and try to make it to work. You, these are, the, he says this, the problem is you are drinking all this stuff, you're anointing yourself with the finest soil, you have all these luxuries, but you are not grieved over the ruin of 
of Joseph. Now Joseph, uh, being a euphemism for Israel, the entire nation of Israel. It's like there are some of you, he's like, he's talking to the people of Israel and he's saying, look, at all, you have all the things that you want, but the problem is deep down, you are not grieved. Because you haven't actually looked at the state of things. How are we as a people of God? Right? Because, because economically, in Amos' time, we know, we know from history that they're actually doing pretty well. Right? They're not in danger at this point. Their borders are fairly secure. Their fortresses are built up. Their army's okay. Economically, they're fine. Agriculture's doing fine. Cattle are being raised. Everything's going fine. So hearing this word from Amos would have been a little confusing. Like, ah, ah, I don't get it. What do you mean? Like, we're doing badly. And he's like, do you not see the spiritual rot inside of the house of God? Do you not see that you are under a spirit of deception? The biggest problem with wealth, the biggest problem with comfort, the biggest problem with complacency is not just that it has you know, some negative effects for you and it hurts other people. That Those are, those are symptoms of the, of the core issue. And the core issue is that you stop caring about the God who cares about you. You stop. You start to believe in yourself. You start to believe in your own capabilities. You start to believe in your college degree. You start to believe in your education. You start to believe in your knowledge. You start to believe in your pedigree. You start to believe in those things instead of believing in God. He says, are you not grieved over the ruin of Joseph? They're looking around going, what, what ruin? He's like, you don't worship Yahweh. He, you can look like a good person on the outside, and on the inside, you are miles away from God. Miles and you think you can make up for it by looking like a good person. Can I tell you something about the gospel? It has nothing to do with being a good person. There's only one good person who has a truly good person who has ever lived, and it's not you. It sure ain't me. Aren't you not grieved? See, the problem is this, that it deceives you. This deceives you. I can't help but think that in this time, in the world in which we're living, if, we, if we're honest... If we think about the state of the church, in the, let's, just, let's just look at the United States. If we're honest, if we look at it, can we not notice, like put on prophetic lenses for a second, from God's perspective, what is happening in our culture? You've had, all, you've had COVID-19, you've had this, this, this huge outbreak of this disease, and at the same time, there has been this resurgence of, hey, can we talk about racism in our country? There's been this research of, hey, can we talk about Me Too? Can we talk about some people who have struggled? Can we talk about these things? God is bringing some things to the surface that have been bubbling underneath of us, and we have been living under a spirit of deception in the church for a very long time. And we have felt, I'm going to say it, and we have felt that because we are married to a certain political wing, that makes us okay on the outside, and God is not pleased. We've got to wake up and smell the coffee. That the things that we need to address are not going to be saved through a political thing, through a political movement, but by a people of God who are not complacent. Culture is not going to be transformed through laws being made. Culture is going to be transformed by hearts that are changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he says, and so what's the cost? We have to look at the last part of the chapter. What's the cost? He says, therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. So he's saying those who are responsible for this, the complacent ones, they will be the first to go into exile. And then in verse 8, he makes it clear. God hates Jacob's pride and security in themselves. Why? Because he desperately 
wants them to lean on him, and they've completely left him in the dust. He's really, and then there's that weird scene. Did anybody catch this weird part where there's like a like somebody goes into a house and you're like, oh, I didn't get that whole part. Like go into the house and somebody's like, is anyone there? And they're like, no. And they're like, shh, don't say God's name. And they're like, walk in. What was that, right? Uh, in verse 10, I actually, I, 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 had to, I had to look into this a little bit. So there's a scene. He's saying that in a house there will be 10 and not one of them will be left alive. So he's saying whatever is going to, the judgment that's going to come, the payment for this is going to be a lot of dead people. And uh, there's going to be somebody who's going to walk into a house to carry out the bones, right? So the nearest relative, their responsibility would be to carry out the bones of the deceased, to carry out the bodies of those who are deceased so that they wouldn't spread disease. Um, uh, and so, but there's like one, there might, so he's in this, in this little, in this little picture, this word picture, there's one person left in the back of the house who's like hiding out in there and he's saying, Hey, um, is there anybody left in this house besides you? And he's like, no. And then he's like, Shh, don't say the name of God. I got to go by. And you're like, what? Why? Um, not because he's like, he's, because he's afraid that the next thing he's going to say is going to be him invoking God's, uh, God's attention, God's, uh, like invoking God's blessing when clearly God is not blessing the nation. So to do so, be like, oh God, and then it's like the eye of Sauron goes onto that house and it's like, oh no, he noticed, now I'm dead too, now we're all going to die, right? Uh, because God is in judge mode right now. So it's like, um, what are we going to do? <laughs> so the idea is this, that. Amos is prophesying about a time that's going to come when there's going to be so much destruction that the symbols of wealth, the houses, he says the, the houses are going to be beaten into little bits, there's going to be nothing left. And the conclusion that we have to come to is that wealth and success, they don't save you from the ultimate judge of the universe. You have to know him. Why? Well, in verse 12, he talks about how righteousness has been turned to poison. Righteousness turned to poison. Now, how does that happen? Um... Has anybody ever seen the movie 12 Years a Slave? If, if you have, uh, I was going to say good for you, but also, like, you know, it's, it's, a very, it's a very difficult film to watch. But I, would, I actually, uh, it's one of those films where it is um, just bald-faced, here's what slavery is. And I think that every person should watch it, honestly. Um, it is brutal. But um, it tells the story of Solomon Northup, true, true account of a guy who's an escaped slave. And, and in that scene, and there's this, I remember there's this one scene where uh, he's, uh, he, he was, he was enslaved, wrongfully enslaved because he was a freeman who lived in the north. He was captured and brought to the south. And, and he's on this plantation, and the plantation owner is standing there, and, and he's preaching the word to his slaves, right? He's got a Bible open, and he's sharing a sermon. And it's really interesting because in that whole scene, you see that in all of his interactions with this guy, you see a man, his, his first master. His first master is this guy who is somewhat kind, I guess. It's like, yeah, cool, you shared the gospel with these people, but also you're living off of them for free. And also they are not exactly looked upon as human beings. So, but you see this guy who is torn and he's so, he's so ingrained in the system that he's like, I don't know what else to do. And ultimately, I look at that and I go, apathy, complacency, right there. Somebody who's too afraid to give it up, because if he rocked the boat, his family would suffer. He would suffer. Can't get rid of slaves, because this, whole, this plantation has belonged to his family, and since time immortal, right? Can't get rid of them. And you see the pain in his face, but he, no, not once in the film is he willing to do anything to, to save Solomon Northup, and get him, even just the one, Solomon, and get him out of slavery. Not once. See, the problem with, with complacency is you can be miles away from God and it shows in the way that you treat others. 
Righteousness gets turned to poison. Justice gets turned into bitterness. And then even in verse 13, they talks about, they go, see, look at all these things that we've done. Look at, we got, we got Karnaim. You're like, I don't care about Karnaim. What is that place? Is that like a is that like a mall? Is that like is that like a coffee shop or something? Like what what is that? It is a it's another place that's near uh, that was part of their territory, and they're saying, hey, we won that by ourselves. See, it, the deception goes even deeper to where even your successes you attribute to yourself. You're like, oh, well, I did that, right? No, God is actually the one who runs all of the universe, and He's the one who brought these good things into your life. See, this is the thing. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said this, It is a terrible tenderness which leaves men to sink into hell rather than distress their minds. It's easy. The gospel in Amos is tough, but it's true. It's easy to overlook injustice. It's easy to overlook things that make us uncomfortable, subjects that we don't want to talk about, difficult things in life, difficult conversations. It's easy to do that. But I honestly believe that God is stirring up something, even in this generation, where it's like, we're not going to put up with this anymore. we got to talk about it. we got to bring what's in the dark out into the light. We need to expose sin for what it is. Why? So that we can be healed. Do you not hear the cry of God throughout this whole thing? He's wanting them to be healed. And so in verse 14, he tells them the ultimate judgment. Do you guys not get it? It's like getting clarified throughout the book. It's like we get a little bit more. What is the judgment? And in verse 14, he makes it clear. He says, a nation is coming to devastate Israel. And this is the scariest thing for them. Because they have fought for generations for this land. They're like, God promised us this land. God would never take it away, would he? Would God remove us from a position of influence? Would God take away something that he gave to us? Well, God is the one who gave it. And God, and he told them in Deuteronomy 28, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. That's just the way it rolls. Until Because right now you're living under a covenant that's temporary. Right now you're living in this time where I'm waiting for the fullness of time. I want you to stay in this place. Why do you want us to stay in this place, God? Because I want my son to come to this place. I need you to defend your home and I need you to protect your hearts, protect your worship. So that way, 700 years after Amos speaks, a man named Jesus can be born. But I need him to be born at a time where the whole world speaks Greek so the word can get out quickly. I need to wait for a time when roads are built, where the Romans built a system, a postal system, so the word can get out across the world. I can't do it now. I got to do that in the fullness of time. I need you to come back to me. Come back to me. My purpose isn't done yet. And I'm telling you right now, you're walking in a pathway where you're going to get overrun. Walking in a pathway where you're going to be overrun. See, it's, when I was growing up, I think that I often assumed that complacency was like a lack of passion for God. But often, complacency looks more like a lack of passion for others. And I grew up in churchy circles where it was easy to not pay attention to the needs of others because I had all my needs being met. And it's only, it's only as I've gotten older that I've been able to look back and go, wow, like there's so many opportunities that I've missed because I was complacent, because I was happy with where I was at, and I was willing to trade that. I was willing to trade that for the purposes of God. And there's, there's, I know that there's times in my life where I missed the boat of what God wanted me to do. See, the greatest enemy of injustice is not hatred, right? It's complacency. And this is reflected in, but, and this is the thing. 
When Jesus was faced with injustice, he didn't just look at it complacently. In fact, Jesus himself said in, in, uh, in the parable of the sower, he talked about how uh, he talked about when God's truth is delivered to somebody's life, it's like a seed that gets sown. And then he said, when uh, he mentioned one seed, though, that fell into the thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grain. And he clarified it for his disciples because they're like, oh, what does that mean? We don't know. And then he was like, uh, okay, fine, I guess I'll explain it. Uh, that seed represents those who are uh, those who hear the word. They're excited when they first hear it, but then he said, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. One of the few things that Jesus said can make your life unfruitful is complacency, a desire for something besides him. Don't waltz through life thinking that you are going to make an impact when you're only focused on yourself. And this is not, I'm not here to just like to rip you guys apart. I mean, I kind of am. But also like, I'm, I'm, I'm here to preach the word. And this is a hard word for me to swallow because for me, I know that in my life, there's been so many times when I've missed opportunities because I was complacent, because it was easy to look the other way. And I don't want us to be like that. I don't think that's who God has called us to be. Jesus never looked the other way. In fact, it says in, in the Gospel of Luke, I believe, that there was a certain point where Jesus, he had been preaching to lots of people. He had been, he had been uh, proclaiming the truth of God. He had been doing miracles. And then there was a point where he stopped and said he set his eyes like flint towards Jerusalem. It's like, all right, it's time. I'm going to face injustice dead in the face. And, and what's crazy is that Jesus didn't have to speak up loudly for it to for it to show. He didn't have to make a big show of it. He just endured injustice. And when he absorbed what should have been given to us, when he absorbed that, how can we look at that? How can we possibly look at the cross of Jesus and think, I'm so glad that my life is comfortable. When God... Uh, I'm trying to remember who said this. I don't remember if it was uh, John Calvin or if it was Martin Luther who said, when God calls a man, he bids him come and die. There's a part of us that may have to die. But death comes before resurrection. When you give your life to Jesus, there are some things in your life that will die. But the life that's going to come out of the ground, that will spring out of the ground, with the resurrection power of Jesus, the same, resur the same power that raised Jesus from the dead three days after he was buried, it will change your life. And not only will it change your life, but when you allow that to grow, instead of the root of complacency, there's a root of love. There's a root of justice that grows up in you. It will make an impact in the lives of others. And sometimes it starts by a simple, a simple thing like noticing. It's not about lifting your hands hard, like hiding you from people. Although, I, you know, worship with us today, tonight. We're going to have a good time with that. But it's not just about looking good on the outside. It's about being Jesus and being that the the very fragrance of Jesus in the world. A fragrance that is not complacent. Amen? So let's, here's our questions. This could breed a lot of discussion tonight, so we'll try to keep it brief, but here's the question. Um, first of all, what was confusing about this passage? Secondly, where do you see the gospel in this passage? Thirdly, how has the church become complacent today? Now, why do I, put the, why I say the church? Because it's easy to bash the church, but also remember that we are the church. So, 
If you're pointing the finger at the church, you're actually going like this. So just, just so you know, if you're in Christ. Now, if you're not a part of the church, yeah, bash away. We're, we can take it. Okay, if you're not a Christian, go go for it. Tell us about tell us about your church here. We're fine. We'll, we'll take that, and we want to we actually hear that. But if, you're, if you are a Christian tonight, I want you to think about that. How is the church growing complacent? I have the feeling that it doesn't necessarily have to do with worship or preaching or the traditional churchy things. So anyway, let's split up into our groups. If you don't know the group that you should be with,